Pull yourself up a chair and join us at the Energy Roundtable. Welcome to Energy Roundtable, where Lisa and I talk about the news stories of the week and sometimes debate, sometimes agree on the merits of the relative articles. So Lisa, welcome to the Roundtable. Thanks, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing uh, doing quite good on this drizzly Friday. And yourself? <laughs> I'm good. I'm hoping the sun peaks out there this weekend. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the plan. So. Um, let's uh, let's dive right in. My first headline is from one of my uh, favorite uh, websites, SmartEnergyDecisions.com, and this headline is "Setting Records: Walmart Continues Moving Towards Becoming a Totally uh, Renewable Business." So, you know, like everything, all of life uh, begins and ends at Walmart. In some, at least, it feels <laughs> sometimes. Um, and so, it's it. The article is actually I don't know if it's really an op-ed, but it's a. Um, an article by one of the, uh, I got to get it here. It, she was, um, no, sorry. He is, oh, he's got a good Dutch name, Mark Vanderhelm. He's the vice president, president of energy and facilities management at Walmart. And so really what they've done is they've partnered with NG um, North America to uh, procure 5,000 megawatts of renewable energy capacity, uh, mostly wind. Uh, but it's there. It's you know that will drive jobs. That will drive you know. Um, but it's it's broader than that. I mean, they're looking at uh, solar as well. Um, so you know they're they're getting there, and um, I think they're calling it Project Gigaton. Uh, oh, they're trying to avoid a gigaton of greenhouse gas emissions from their supply chain. So that's scope three, right? So that's for for Walmart. It's that scope three stuff. I think that that is is massive, right? So yeah. Um, and it's what I like about this initiative, and I, I don't have all the details, but it's 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 showing, you know, that they're driving towards and then they're going to pull everybody with them, right? Because everybody wants to be a supplier to Walmart. Everybody wants to be a supplier to Costco. Uh, and to do that, to play in that club, you're going to have to, you know, follow suit uh, to, to help them with their scope three uh, emissions, which come from the supply chain. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a it's an exciting news story. Anytime somebody makes this big of a commitment, uh, things are going to happen. I give it a thumbs up, Matt. I love the story. The fact that uh, you know Walmart's getting engaged. I mean, uh, I know that uh, some of our staff. I think one of them in particular was involved involved in the solar space at some point in the past, and he was doing a whole bunch of stuff with Home Depots. At least I think that was kind of the plan. So to see some of these big organizations kind of going towards that, I think it's going to help set the stage for some of the smaller organizations to follow. So I, I like it. I give it a thumbs up. One little uh, nugget of, uh, of facts, um, their energy, renewable energy supplied uh, for them last year, 4 billion kilowatt hours. So, wow. Uh, those are those are some, that's some, they are America's uh, largest retailer in terms of annual green power usage in 2020. Wow. wow. Already top of the heap and, and trying to move further ahead. So That's great. And once again, you have uh, sort of teed me up to my next article or my, my article that I'm going to talk about now because um, I was actually going to talk about my other one first. But uh, this one is from uh, Grist, grist.org. Uh, it's the problem with big oil's climate goals. They don't include all the oil is what it's titled. The reporter on the article is Shannon Osaka. And basically what she's, it's a bit of an opinion piece. It's kind of, um, I'll call it negative uh, in terms of kind of uh, her view of what the oil companies are doing. But um, 
She's basically suggesting that net zero claims by these big oil companies need to be taken with a grain of salt. Um, and uh, they're not really talking about, they're talking about a select portion of their business model. So talking about kind of scope one, two, and three emissions. Uh, one of the things that she highlights in the article is BP, for example, they've pledged to cut emissions of all oil and gas uh, that it extracts to net zero by 2050. But that's only about a third of the energy um, prod the products the company sells. BP apparently buys a lot of crude oil and gas from other producers and then sells them to customers. The the, the part that I was kind of interested, uh, oh, and then, sorry, she further talks about, um, you know, they're leaving the door open to offsetting some emissions by planting trees or using technologies to store carbon deep underground. Uh, she explains that sometimes they can be effective, but it also allows companies to carry on with business as usual instead of making more significant structural changes. We know which she's got some merit to that specific point, but it does. The reason I like the article isn't so much about the oil piece because that's that's a little bit hard to really start to kind of clean up. I think they're trying to do a good job of getting there, so they're making some aggressive goals to do that. And uh, well, as uh, Graham Seaman on our uh, you know our podcast that we just got off of suggested, you you've got to really make the plan and then figure out how you're going to get there. Um, but it does kind of raise a good point about scope one, two, and three emissions. Like when we hear, when we talk about net zero emissions, what are people really thinking about? Are they thinking about it, you know, as a holistic package, or are they just talking about direct or indirect emissions? Um, so yeah, I just kind of like the article for that because it really started to point out the differences between scope one, two, and three, and the importance of looking at it as a whole. Well, I'm 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 a thumbs up on this one too, and I, I actually checked out grist.org as you were talking, and it looks like a pretty cool website. Um, and I, I, you often hear me talk about, you know, where's the envelope, or you know, as a good engineer, we talk about, you know, control volumes, and 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 sometimes I think in this world to get a good story, with that that control volume is too small, and mm -hmm. uh, this does a good job, I think, of of pointing out. Um, you know, how big the control volume needs to be uh, so that we get a clear picture of, of it, right? Because our control volume as a, as a society and as a people is, is the atmosphere, right? And so, you know, we have to make sure we're including all impacts to the atmosphere in our control volume. So yeah, exactly. uh, very cool. It's, it's good to have uh, critical voices and critical thought in, uh, in today's day and age, for sure, with so much uh, fake news. It's good to have <laughs> somebody thinking critically. My next uh, story is from uh, the one of the two or three national papers, uh, the one that I don't read, uh, but from the Globe and Mail, I did read this article. Um, it's an op-ed. It's published by Heather Chalmers, who is the president and CEO of GE Canada, General Electric Canada. Uh, and, the, and the title is How Canada Can Lead Amid the Global Energy Transition. So it's really a, a challenge or to the readers, a call to action you know, saying, you know, talking about the the targets we set federally and, you know, some of the ambitions that the federal government has. Um, and, you know, really, we need to have an innovative and kind of broad portfolio approach to uh, to getting there uh, and to getting to a uh, low carbon emitting uh, world. And I think one of the things, um, you know, she, she acknowledges the drive towards hydrogen, you know, our favorite word and, and those kind of things. Um, you know, the other thing that she really is pushing on is is SMRs, small modular reactors, and how they can fit in and how Canada could potentially be a leader in the SMR space. But she also um, calls for a pragmatic approach to it and, you know, making sure that the risk management and the policy aligns with 
making sure we're leading and not lagging and me making sure we can get to projects relatively mm-hmm. um you know soon so um you know and then and then she also talks about closing the skills gap uh and so so overall it's a really good article to say you know yes we're doing the right things and here's some other things we need to be mindful of so that we can follow through on our commitments so and, and it's good to hear from somebody in in business and business leadership on on a topic like this you know who's boots on the ground trying to make it happen as well so yeah yeah no that's i give that a thumbs up and it's uh it's kind of interesting because when you think about technologies and you think about what our you know how our world is evolving and uh again you know the story about electrification versus using natural gas you you, you kind of wonder if maybe it needs some broader organization uh and maybe the federal government is part of it maybe they're not uh, but in terms of setting the stage of what this really needs to look like to make sure we're covering all aspects, right? When we talk about resiliency and sustainability and what this needs to look like, do we want to end up, uh, I mean, if you use Texas as an example, you know, where, you know, if coal fire or gas fire power plants are down and the wind's not blowing enough and sun's not out enough, you know, there's, you lose the resiliency, right? And then you lose, and, th- and then that affects businesses and it, it kind of keeps going down the chain. So you kind of think, what does this need to look like? And how, how do we manage this to make sure we're doing it right? Because we really have, we can do this right once. We're not going to have the ability to, you know, keep correcting this, you know, maybe 50 years down the road or 30 years down the road, right? The, the counterpoint is, you know, at some point we got the filament in a uh, in a light bulb right, and not we. I mean, um, Edison did, but um, you know, it, it took him a lot of wrongs to get there. So that's you know, true. At the same time, progress requires that we make some mistakes too. So yeah, um, I'm not sure I want governments uh, picking winners. Sort of well, that's why I was kind of like, eh, I don't know if you want necessarily them, or or if it should be somebody else that's maybe tied to them, but. Um, yeah, it's you got to you kind of think how how that has to fit together to make it right, right? Right. You got one more article? Uh, yes, sorry, uh, I do. Uh, this one is from Sussex Strategy Group. Uh, this actually just came out yesterday. I was pretty excited, so I actually had original a different article picked out today, but I thought I would talk about this one. So it's titled uh, "Ontario Minister of Natural Resources and Forestry Releases Ontario's Draft Forest Biomass Action Plan for Consultation." Cool. I was pretty excited about this because we haven't really heard a lot about biomass. I mean, it's received a lot of, um, I'll call it negative press for people that really don't understand biomass as a whole. Um, but basically, the strategy is to help improve the provincial forest industry's cost competitiveness by maximizing the use of mill byproducts and enabling the province to reduce the need for more carbon intensive fuels. Um, and then they talk about a couple of, of objectives objectives that the plan has. I'll go through them here really quickly. So the first one is to identify pathways to markets for forest biomass. Second one is support demand for forest bioenergy and bio, bio products. The third one is improve the business and regulatory environments for the use of forest biomass. The fourth mm-hmm. one is support holistic, cultural, relevant pathways for Indigenous community involvement and forest biomass value chains to support reconciliation between Indigenous communities and the Crown. And the fifth one is communicate, collaborate, and inform on, on forest biomass opportunities. And I like this because, you know, we, we talk about a variety of technologies within CEM and within, you know, on our kind of media streams, whether it be energy, energy radio, energy roundtable, energy news, um, 
but you know we don't again biomass doesn't maybe get as much of it as uh you know attention as it deserves um it's a a great technology that has been quite successful in europe so the fact that we're starting to have this conversation and that is coming up as a technology that could be used as part of our paths net zero is quite intriguing um so i give it a thumbs up for that reason so does the the plan speak about raking the forest floors because according to uh, the former president trump and that's the key to good forest management. That's why Finland is so so successful. They rake their floors. Um, of their for that's a little tongue-in-cheek reference to uh, to the fire, the forest fire, the unfortunate forest fires in California, and Trump's poor handling, saying that they didn't rake the floors. <laughs> Listen, I mean, Canada has such a great resource in terms of um, you know biomass, and and we have to. It's a resource on a bunch of different levels, including you know, being a big part of the carbon chain and then the carbon cycle and, and, and pulling carbon. So, so obviously we have to be good stewards of it. Um, but yeah, can we, can we use it uh, and leverage it and, and to have some policy that drives some leadership around it? Uh, that's great. I mean, policy also always has to go through the stakeholdering process, right? So what, what will that look like? How long will it take? You know, remains to be seen, but yeah, I think it sounds like a positive signal for uh, more options, more fuel options. So uh, yeah, thumbs up from me as well. Very cool. Good. Well, we are now uh, at our face-off and we're going to invite our uh, content creator, producer, all-around cool guy, Mark Charbonneau, uh, who administered our face-off. Mark, welcome to the roundtable. Hi, guys. How are you? Hey, Mark. Good. How are you? Good. I'm well, thanks. So, so we I have, thought we have, it, we have a, a Mother's Day face-off. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I thought we'd go a little bit lighter than usual and uh, figure out, I, I need to know what I'm going to sip on this evening um, to celebrate, you know, all the mothers out there, uh, including Lisa as well. Uh, yes, right. so, it's my I, first I, one. That's right. Big deal. Yes. Big oh, deal. that is right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I'll do both of these then tonight just to celebrate you then, Lisa. But <laughs> oh, um, okay. so I figured I figured I'm going to do a toast to the, to the moms. So I don't know if I'm going to have sip on like an ice cold pint of beer or a nice tall glass of wine. So um, I'll let I'll leave it up to the two of you to uh, figure that out and uh, pitch me on on which one I should be drinking. And Lisa, I'll let you pick heads or tails for this this coin toss. Okay, okay. I'll I'll pick heads. Uh oh. Uh oh. What do you do? Sorry. <laughs> it fell. Um, it, it's it, it is heads. Okay. Uh, well, let me talk about beer. So for the record, though. Just to make you know everybody understand, I actually really like both drinks. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, not my not my, my that my grandma grandfather was an alcoholic, but he used to say there's no bad drinks, and uh, I totally agree with that statement. Uh, but I'll I'll take the beer side. So all right, beer. Why is it better? Um, well, it has a lower alcohol percentage, which is easier on the kidneys and liver. Bonus. Uh, it has a lot less sugar content than wine, so it might be a little better for your waistline. Although many people do get beer bellies i suppose um beer commercials are way better way better than wine commercials um it's way better after a workout quenches your thirst much better than than wine does every cycle every uh road bike or mountain bike ride i take I'll, well not every but most of them i'll have a beer afterwards um you can make beer at home faster than you can wine um it's homer simpson's favorite drink <laughs> so for that reason it's another one another bonus uh and hangovers are a lot easier to typically deal with for those that you know drink maybe a little bit too much 
And uh, the last point is probably if you've heard of the beer festival or the festival in Germany, Oktoberfest, well, case in point. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm not nearly as well versed in the consumption of alcohol as my colleague is. <laughs> I will try my best. Um, I do have a bias towards wine over beer, so this this fits well. Oh, uh, okay. yeah. I, I, as I've gotten older, I've I've had a bias to uh, to now. Mark, you know, I might suggest a third option, um, uh, a, a glass of scotch you could also sip on this evening as well. Um, I'm certainly a scotch drinker, so that would be that would bode well. <laughs> As you watch Blue Bloods on CBS at 10 a.m. Eastern, um, anyways, a little inside joke for my wife. Anyways, uh, wine. So first of all, nobody collects beer, uh, or nobody admits to it, right? So so wine has this kind of panache around. You know, nobody has a beer cellar, right? Like it's it, it, okay, we consume it with the boys at the at you know at the bar, but wine has that kind of panache and that kind of it's it's just a it's a classier drink let's put it that way and you can collect it it can age it can mature um you know you have you have selections from all over the world i guess you have that with beer too um we're recording this at least me in niagara niagara has a big you know so it's got this opportunity to really support uh the local economy uh and i'll just i'll, I'll just finish with this one which i think should clinch the argument uh regardless of your religious uh, beliefs jesus did not turn water into beer he turned water, <laughs> he turned water into wine so uh, i will leave on that note okay <laughs> wow <clears throat> Yeah, this is a tough one, um, but I'm going to have to say that Lisa convinced me to have a beer more so than uh, than have a glass of wine this evening, although I may end up having both, to be honest. But, um, uh, the, bigger, the bigger question, though, Mark, is what is your favorite? My favorite? Yeah, like you prefer wine over <clears throat> beer or the other it's way hard to, It depends on the day, really. I think like a hot day, obviously, I'd rather have a beer if I'm sitting out on a patio, but I'd love a nice glass of wine with a meal, right? So... And um, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, and then again, then after after a meal, I would have a scotch or something, you know, because I'm a big yeah. scotch drinker. Right. Yeah. For, for me, it's actually it's very uh, dependent on the season. So yeah. I will have beer typically in the summer yeah. uh, and spring, summer and then come fall, winter. I don't know. It's just it's not the same. So I switch over to wine. I agree. I agree. And I also enjoy I've been getting into the craft beers a lot, too. So, yeah, those are fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like energy generation, right? Like you need to have options, right? Not everything can be renewable, wind and solar. It can't all be beer. We need we need wine. We need scotch. We need vodka. Uh, we need we need options so that we you know for the right seasons. Um, so uh, I, I I agree. Lisa's arguments were more compelling. I thought I would. Uh, I would do better than I did, but uh, I agree you made the right choice. So, and in any in any regard, uh, let us all toast to our mothers and uh, to Lisa on her first Mother's Day. May you Yay. enjoy exciting. Uh, so, uh, thank you both uh, for participating, and thank you to our listeners for another episode of Energy Roundtable. Uh, give us your feedback in the comments. Look forward to hearing from you. Uh, take care and stay safe. Bye, guys.